0: Jez is going to come and uh, share in just a bit, Um, but first uh, I'm going to invite uh, Rumbi up here and uh, Rumbi's just going to share uh, from the Bible. She's going to read the scripture that Jez is going to be preaching from this morning. So give it up for Rumbi, shall we? (laughs)
1: morning, I'm going to be reading from Genesis chapter 22. It's titled, The Sacrifice of Isaac. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. After "'and saw the place from afar. "'Then Abraham said to his young men, "'Stay here with the donkey. "'I and the boy will go over there and worship "'and come again to you.' "'And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering "'and laid it on Isaac, his son. "'And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. "'So they went, both of them, together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both So they went, both of them, together. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son, But the angel of Yahweh called to him from from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son for me. It shall be provided. Wow. Glory to God. This is amazing faith. Wow. And the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Verse 19. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they r- arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word in the Bible. It's an amazing faith that Abraham is shown. Jesus, you.
0: Thank you, Rumbi. Let's give Rumbi a hand. Well, thank you for reading that so well. It's a, a famous story. Uh, dramatic story and one that's quite difficult to swallow, hard to digest. We had uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah last week and the sacrifice of Isaac this week, so we're really um, motoring through some of the trickiest bits of the Bible. Now, every week in this country, hundreds of people uh, agree to having poison injected into their bloodstream, and many of them thank, doc- thank their doctors as a result of doing it. There's a severity in a treatment, but there's a severity of treatment that's in proportion to the severity of the condition that these patients have. And it's true that in some cases where there's an apparent cruelty going on, we can recognize not cruelty, but kindness. So when a surgeon operates on the limb of someone who's got gangrene, we recognize a kindness in that cruelty because it saves their lives. As as parents, you know that you often have to... um, not necessarily operate on the limbs of your kids as much as you might like, but you recognize you have to be hard on them. You have to discipline them. You have to be firm at times. You have to do things that they might think are cruel. A whole week without an iPad. Um, but you do it because you love them. It comes from a place of kindness. I have a friend of mine who at his wedding thanked his parents in his groom speech for being so strict with him as he was growing up because he recognized he needed that firm hand to help him develop and grow and mature and become the man that he is today. That's part of what's going on in this story that we had read to us, I believe. There is a brokenness, a severe brokenness in the human race that God uses severe means to weed out and to cure and to help us recover from it's part of what's going on but come on child sacrifice asking your servant to kill their son isn't that going a little bit too far isn't that a little bit too much well this bible story presents us with a number of challenges at least it does me as i read it questions appear in my mind As the story has been, poems have been written about it, it's been dramatized through the ages and paintings have been painted about it from artists like William Blake through to the the famous one by Rembrandt on the next slide here. It's a famous story and stories are useful because stories teach us important lessons about life. As a child, I learned from Hansel and Gretel that I should never walk in the woods alone. And I learned from Little Red Riding that I should never trust my grandma. Uh, (laughs) Stories are very powerful, and they have a way of teaching us things. We're in a teaching series considering some of the surprising acts of God's kindness, some of the surprising ways that God has treated his people with kindness, some of the stories. So what does this story teach us? Well, this story is far from just a myth or a fable that's intended to just teach us a moral lesson. The grim, concrete realities in this text are part of what make it so indigestible. The preparing of the wood, the inquiring boy, the sharpening of the knife. It's just you can picture the scene. And you know as you read it, this is history. The author hasn't switched from Genesis 21 to 22. He's writing an account of what actually took place. So how do we answer some of the questions that come to our mind? Would I have done this? You think and you read this, if God asked me to do this, would I have done this? Or oh, maybe sometimes. Um, would you have done it? Will God ever ask me to do this? How do I know? Is God a bloodthirsty monster? Or horror of horrors, what if God is not a socially liberal, jolly grandpa who's good for cuddles and encouragement? What if there's a fierceness to God, an otherness to God, a holiness to God that I find offensive. How do I handle that? So today I want to answer or ask and answer two questions and then make one point. So it's really a one-point sermon. It's just got two questions before it. The questions are this, is God a bloodthirsty monster? Question one, bloodthirsty monster who requires child sacrifice. And question two, does God test people like that today? And then we'll come on to the point when we get there. But let's have a look at this first question. Is God a bloodthirsty monster? And to answer this question, we're going to approach this story in three stages. First of all, there's the wide-angle lens of the society at large. Abraham's living in the ancient Middle East, ancient Near East, and as, as such is a man who's familiar with the practices and customs of his day. Now we know from the Bible at a later point in history, and so possibly from around this time, but certainly at a later point in history, some of the societies and nations around Abraham practiced child sacrifice as a way of appeasing their God. Abraham's familiar with that as an idea. In fact, God um, tells his people off for becoming friendly with some of those nations that practice this because he thinks it's an abhorrent practice. Um, we also know that in the, in the Old Testament, God gave us, gave his people the law, among them the top ten, and in the top ten commandments is the commandment, you shall not murder. So God is opposed to child sacrifice and even expressively forbids, expressly forbids murder in the society. But also in the society of Abraham's day, there's an understanding that the human race is guilty. There's a brokenness about us. We're not living as we were originally intended to. In Abraham's day, the human race is still quite young. And the knowledge of their original designer's intention of them to be friends with God is still there in their psyche somewhere in the stories. And as such, the the nations, including Abraham, understand that there's a guilt. There's a blood guilt that needs to be atoned for by sacrifice. They also understand the part of the, they also understand that the, as a result of this guilt, the firstborn son born into any family needs to be ransomed back. It, the firstborn son uh, belongs to the gods, belongs to God. And in the Old Testament, God gives them commandments of how to ransom the life of your firstborn son. But Abraham at least understands this. He understands that when God asks for the life of Isaac, he's within his right. Because the human race is guilty of real guilt and is broken. And that's the society. That's the wide-angle lens of how Abraham would have processed this. But then let's come to the context, a slightly narrower lens. And for this, this is where we have our previously in Genesis moment. Because previously in Genesis, we looked at the story of Hagar and Ishmael. Ishmael was Abraham's servant by whom he conceived Ishmael. He had Ishmael and said to God, will this son do as the promised son? You know, Because God had made promises to Abraham that he was going to bless him and his descendants. And so he said, what about Ishmael? And God said, no, not Ishmael. And as a result, he had to cast Hagar and Ishmael out into exile in the desert. And in that story, there's a few clues that help us understand what's going on here. In that story, when Abraham casts Hagar out into the desert, the same phrase appears there as appears here. It says that Abraham rose early in the morning to go and do this. Also, in that story, we learn from Hagar that God is a God of seeing. That's her revelation. She says that Yahweh is the, is the God who sees. And God tells Abraham to go to the land of Moriah, which means seen by Yahweh. So in the place that God tells Abraham to go, there's, a, there's a, almost a, an understanding in the word that come and see what God is going to do. Hagar learnt that God a God of seeing, reported this to Abraham. You can entrust God with your future, she told them. You can entrust the one who sees the future, the God of seeing, you can entrust him with your lives. That's also what's going on here. But let's come a little bit narrower. Let's come to the actual Bible passage itself and see if we can make any sense of why God would ask Abraham to do this and what's going on. So in Genesis chapter 22, in the first two verses, it says this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, which is near Mordor in Middle Earth, and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountain of which I shall tell you. Right in the first verse, we're told God tested Abraham. Abraham. So, as a reader, we're let in from the beginning. This is a test. God does not intend for Isaac to for Isaac to be sacrificed. This is a test. We think, well, we understand as a reader, but does Abraham? This is a bit cruel that he has to go through this. He doesn't know it's a test, or does he? Because you know the directive, the instruction that Abraham is given by God. It's a tender commandment from God. It's not brutal. It's not cruel. says take your son your only son the son you love as though God is acknowledging I know I'm asking a big thing I beg of you though take your son in fact some commentators have said that because of the tone that God communicates to Abraham through in this way if Abraham was to have disobeyed he wouldn't have been sinning they suggest says take your son your only son and again when I first read that it sounds like God's just twisting the knife. It's a little bit cruel, isn't it? Take your son, your only son, the son you love. It's like, ow, I get it. Like, All right. But actually, in that statement, your only son, the son you love, he's reminding him of the covenant promise that he's made to him. Because the promise was, through Isaac, I'm going to bless the entire world. Through Isaac, Jesus eventually comes. He's reminding him when he uses that phrase, there's a promise going on here, Abraham. Remember the promise. Remember. There's a promise going on. But also, going right back to Genesis 12 when we first met Abraham, Abraham was living in the land of Haran with his father Terah. And it says that God spoke to Abraham and said, Go to the land that I will show you. He went there and it all turned out okay. God made promises to him. He learned he could trust God. So here, God says to him, Go to the land or to the mountain that I will show you. Again, he's using the same phrases. He's reminding him of the same ideas to make the point. You trusted me then, you can trust me now. Abraham seems to understand there's something bigger going on here. Last week, as I mentioned, we looked at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it strikes me as odd that in that story, God says to Abraham, I'm going to destroy these cities. And what does Abraham do? He barter[s] with God. He says, oh, you know, won't the judge of all the earth do what's right? If I can find 50 righteous people or 30 righteous people or five righteous people, just one righteous person, will you not destroy the city? He barters with him. Here, God says to Abraham, go kill your son. And he's like, okay, I'll get up early in the morning and do it right away. He doesn't barter with him. Why would Abraham barter over Sodom but not over his son? Unless he understands there's something going on. This is a test. He's being asked to trust God with his future. It is as though God is saying in all of this, I know you don't understand. I know this is difficult. I know I'm asking you to do an outrageous thing. But based on what we've done together in the past, trust me, go kill Isaac. So is God a monster? Well, Abraham doesn't seem to think so. He understands there's something else going on here. So then the question hangs, well, does God test people like that today? Which for modern readers We find the idea of God testing the faithful quite offensive. We as parents think that you're to love your kids with kindness, you don't test them. Our teachers are meant to empower children to discover and explore their potential, not Be tested. And so when our schools force our kids to sit sats, some of us take our kids out of school. Like, I'm not having my child sit through some sats, it might damage their self esteem. I don't like trials, I don't like tests, it's not good for us. We live in a society where everyone gets medals. You get medals for participation these days, um, which means that everyone's a winner and therefore no one is. Um, We live in a society where increasingly we want to raise our kids like we want our chickens. We want them to be free range, we want them to just have the run of the farm and do what they want. Um, Go and explore, and I won't tell you what to do. I won't tame you or discipline you or test you. No, just go. If you want to do it, you go. Of course you can. Actually, it won't surprise you to learn that the Bible sees things differently. God approaches things differently. For one thing, in the Bible, the concept of free range is more often a a concept to do with judgment than wise parenting. In the book of Romans, it says that when the... Our first, the first parents, the first human race rebelled against God. God gave them over to their desires. You want to be free? He gave them free reign. You want to do it? Have it your way. And that's a shocking and awful sign of judgment. Because God just took his hands off. Said, fine, have it your way. He judged us, judged us in that way. And in the Bible, you see that God uses trials and tests time and time again. He uses it on his community, on the people of Israel. They were forced to spend 40 years wandering around the desert because God was testing them. And When they eventually got into the land, the book of Judges tells us that God permitted some foreign nations to live alongside them as a means of testing the people of Israel. When Israel was sent into exile and led as slaves captive into another country, we're told that was because of God's discipline of them, it was testing them in it. He doesn't just do it to the community of the people, though, he does it to individuals. King David says, I know that you're a God who tries the heart. The book of Job is about how God tested an individual through circumstances and Satan. Jesus himself, we're told, learnt obedience through what he suffered. Jesus was led into the wilderness for a time of testing. We remember it by having pancakes. But Jesus was led there as a time of testing for 40 days, went without food, and we're told he was led there by God. The book of James tells us that we're to consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds because we know that trials are producing essentially producing a good in us. And the book of Hebrews tells us that if you're not disciplined by God, you're not a legitimate child of God's. If, God, if you feel like God treats you harshly at times, Hebrews says, well, you should be happy because that means that he's your father, you're actually his son. You know, I, I don't, I see kids running around and I don't discipline other people's kids. I discipline mine because I care about them. I want them to be trained and well taught. I don't care about other kids, just care about mine. And they can do what they want. And the Bible says it's the same with God. If you're not, if you don't ever experience the testing, hard hand of God, Hebrews says, it might be because you're not a legitimate child. In fact, the King James Version puts it even strongly, even, more, even stronger than that, and uses a word that I'll let you look up when you go home, because I won't say it out loud now. It says, you're not a legitimate child. You know, in Christianity, we celebrate and talk a lot about and sing a lot about the love of God. We celebrate God's tender father heart towards us. And that's good. It's appropriate. That's how God feels towards us. But the image in popular Christianity of God is that he is a doting dad and that's almost all he is. You know, if you ever see a, a father of a newborn son, they'll just hold their newborn son in their arms and just stare at them for hours on end. Like, oh, until the napping is changing. They'll just stare at them on hours on end. Oh, look. Come and look. Oh, look, he dribbled. And we think that God is like that. Look, they dribbled. Oh, look, I love them. And there certainly is that tenderness in God's heart towards you and I. But the Bible says that God is also a refining fire. It says that he pictures him often often like a coach or a shepherd who leads his people. Leads them sometimes through the valley of the shadow of death. I'll fear no evil. Why? Because I get to avoid it? No, because you're with me. But he still leads us there. In describing the Christian life, the Apostle Paul talks about himself in terms of being an athlete or being a soldier. Saying I'm going to beat my body, get it into shape so that when I run I get the prize. I'm not disqualified by sin or by a form of self of my own. We're told to throw off everything that hinders us and entangles us and run with perseverance. The image here, of course, is that God is a God of love and a father who dotes, but he's also a coach who trains, a father who disciplines because he loves us. I've known times in my life, and I'm sure you have too, where as a Christian I felt the disciplining, hard, heavy hand of God. Or at times it's been because I haven't felt the disciplining hard hand of God it's felt like a trial I know when I first moved to Seaford to lead the church there the first year of leading the church there was spiritually the hardest year of my life because I doubted God in a way that I hadn't done before I think I've always wrestled with doubt it's always been a temptation of mine but in that year it was it felt chronic every second thought was there's no God I'm wasting my time this is pointless. What am I doing here? Why have I moved here? There isn't a God. I'm making this up. And I'd try to pray. I'd try to preach. And there'd just be silence. My prayers would bounce off the walls or the ceiling or the floor, but certainly it wouldn't reach God, or I wouldn't feel as though they did. It was hard. God, why are you not? Where are you? Where have you gone? The sun was hidden behind the clouds, but the sun was still there. I was just being disciplined and tested and taught and learned and, you know that some of the most valuable things that you learn in life, you don't learn by getting your own way. You learn when you don't get your own way and you have to wrestle with the consequences you have to trust God through it. So the question then stands, does God test us like that today? Well, he, doesn't, he does, but he doesn't test us like that. He's not going to ask you to kill your kids. I'm sorry to report. If, God, if you ever feel God telling you to do something that the Bible expressly condemns and forbids, the chances are it's not you. It's not God, it's you. God tests us because he's committed to your good. He tests you and he treats you with severity because the problem that you and I have is a severe problem, like the cutting off of the limb to stop the spread of gangrene. So it is with us that we're broken human beings, flawed, all of us. We're often like spoiled children who just, we just need to get our own way the whole time. We're selfish and self-centered, Maybe you're not, but I'm just talking about myself here. This is therapy. I'm just selfish and self centered. You can ask my wife. So God disciplines me to make me more like His Son, and He does it for my good. Our problem, you see, our problem isn't that we sin, our problem isn't that we do wrong, because. There are courses you can go on to help you sin less, change your habits, become a nicer, kinder, better person. Many of my non-Christian friends are much nicer people than I am. So my problem isn't sin or just that we do wrong things. Sin is more, it's the symptom of a much larger condition. It's the surface of a much deeper issue. And the issue is that you and I are worshippers. We grab at things and... Need and look to them for salvation, hope, and healing, and rescue, and everything that we need. We're worshippers. We adore, we admire, we revere, we hold up, we bow down before idols, often, more than we do before God. You say, well, I'm not an idolater. Well, consider what happened with Abraham. Abraham comes from a, a people who previously were idolaters. They actually did make gods out of wood and bow down to them. He's got that in his ancestry, in his past. But although he's now worshipping God and not idols, God knows that an, an idol that you bow down to is really a, again, it's a picture of what's going on in your heart, that the heart makes gods, makes idols, looks for salvation in all kinds of things. And so imagine being Abraham and having Isaac arrive on the scene. In the ancient world, then, as, as as in a lot of ways now, to have a son, have a child, was a means of salvation. Because it meant that your name, your possessions, your, your goods were going to pass on to the next generation. You weren't going to disappear into history. You were going to have salvation. You were going to outlive your life because here is a child. And so it was very tempting for Abraham to put all of his Eggs in the Isaac basket, our hope in Isaac, to look to him, say, Deliver me, Isaac, my son, you have rescued me. And so God, knowing this and loving Abraham, treats him severely to root out this idolatry. Because God knows that idols only ever ultimately enslave, disappoint, or let us down. Idols rob us of joy and of goodness and of health. And of long life and of strength even beyond death. God alone is the one who's able to satisfy you, comfort you and deliver you even beyond death. God alone is able to be with you and help you to stay strong. And God alone holds the keys of the, of the grave and is able to strengthen you even beyond the grave. So God is the, the God that we're able to hope in that remains with us throughout the trials of life. Through chronic pain, through the valley of despair, through prosperity and disappointment, God is with us. You see, I, like many of us, am very tempted to build my hope on the things around me. What will rescue me and make me a fulfilled human being is a good reputation. If all men and women speak well of me, so I'll behave politely and I'll look to butter people up and come across sweetly so that I can gain a good reputation. Because, and that means that I won't do things that will damage my reputation because that's become an idol for me, something that I hope in. Or my freedom of expression. I should be able to do what I want when I want it. And if God tells me otherwise, well, I'll choose my own desires. God is a straitjacket anyway and I want to be free. It becomes an idol for me, something that I can live for. Or just our desires. My desires are great. I'll indulge in every desire and every greed that I see. And I've got science to back it up to tell me that this is my path to happiness. Then I'll do it. And they become idols of freedom of expression, of identity, money, or or sex, or power, or just status. We live for it. We pursue it. And God knows that he alone is able to bring us the hope and life and freedom and joy that we long for and need. Everything else, all other idolatry, is enslaved. He knew that with Abraham, so he tested him in a severe way. But as Abraham understood, God's not a monster. This this was about something bigger. This, his testing of him with Isaac, he knew this was about that bigger. It was about the rooting out of idolatry. But it was about the ultimate provision of God into the future. God was asking Abraham to trust him because this, what was going on on the Mount of Moriah, was really about that, the provision of the ram. And that's the point. That's the point I want to finish on in the last couple of minutes is that God is not a monster, not a monster. God does test us because this is really about that. This was really about that. And Abraham understood it. You see, on the same range of hills that Abraham took Isaac, Jesus was eventually led out up a hill. And just as the servants disappear into the background as the scene focuses on these two individuals climbing a hill. So it is that the disciples fade into the background at the time of Jesus' greatest need. Like Isaac, Jesus carries the wood up the up the hill. Like Isaac, Jesus is the beloved son of the Father. And many of the same grim realities that are in this story are in that story. Peter weeps bitter tears over denying his Lord. Judas hangs himself. Pontius Pilate washes his hands of any involvement. The crowd chant for death. The soldiers mock and beat and stab and eventually kill. Just as Abraham prepares the wood for sacrifice, so the soldiers prepare the wood for Christ. Just as Abraham lifts the knife for sacrifice, so the soldiers lift theirs. But unlike Abraham, when Jesus was being prepared for sacrifice, no voice came from heaven. No one told them to stop. There was just darkness that followed and death and pain and despair The father's beloved son dies hated and despised. God says to Abraham, now I know that you fear me because you were willing to not withhold even your own son from me. And the Apostle Paul, echoing that same theme, says we know that he loves us because he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He's reminding us of that, saying that was really about this. That third day story did you notice that on the third day abraham took isaac for sacrifice is about our third day story that when christ was crucified and then rose to life again it was god's means of provision and healing and rescue for you and i god is not a bloodthirsty monster god is not willing us to fail he's a father who loves and disciplines us because he loves, and he sends his son so that we can learn to trust him into the future. Just as he said to Abraham, "Trust me, in light of everything, trust me." So he says to us, "In light of everything that I've done for you, trust me with your life. You can trust me. I'm the God of provision and the God of promise. I'm the God of substitute and sacrifice. You can trust me with your life." And so as Christians, in obedience to that, we follow Jesus. We get baptized. We talked about it in the info point. In baptism, we become like Isaac. We offer ourselves to him. We put ourselves on the altar, and we're saying, you can have me. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. I deserve to die. But just as with Isaac, we receive our life back because he doesn't require it of us because he took it of his own son. His son died and came back to life, so we don't have to we can live a life now learning to trust him with our lives into the future this has always been about that everything we do as a church is about that it's about that provision it's about that promise it's why we exhort one another and encourage one another to trust him to cling to him to not bow down before the things of this world the good things in this world are not God's only God is God and only he can be trusted with our lives We're going to respond together this morning by, um, the band are going to sing to us, uh, picking up and echoing many of the themes that we've been hearing about already this morning. And then in response, we're going to stand, we're going to make our way to the tables, we've got two at the front and one at the back, we're going to take some bread, drink some juice as an act of remembering this, remembering what Jesus has done for us, remembering that this story is about that moment in history when God provided for us. And if you're not yet a Christian, today you can become a Christian. You can entrust your life to God. You can receive Jesus' death on the cross for you and in your place. As we go to break bread and and juice, this is for those who call themselves Christians. So if you're not yet a Christian, you can use it as your time perhaps to sit and reflect and to consider if this is for you. Let me pray for us and I'll hand over to the band. Father, thank you that you provided a sacrifice for us. Thank you that you're a good father who loves us and you love us so much. You're committed so much to our good that you're willing to test us, to try us, and to help us to trust you through life. Amen.